This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, from superchargers and brakes to exhaust kits and beyond, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Stay mage and enjoy yourself. Cheap Heat. How are you, Jimmy? Good morning or good afternoon, either one. It's great, man. What a great day to be alive down here in Clearwater Beach, Florida at Hulk Hogan's Wrestling Shop down here. So uh, talking to you, man, I love this. This is awesome. Uh, Jimmy, we I, I, I don't I don't remember what the impetus was, but at some point I saw you pop up on Instagram and I, I just started thinking about what a treasure you are to this business and that we've never had a conversation. I've had the pleasure of meeting you. You've always been so warm. Whenever I run into you backstage, everyone loves you. And then you're involved in so many of my favorite things in the history of this business. And I'm like, I have to talk to Jimmy Hart. So we've been talking about it for a long time. Um, I often like to play my Jimmy Hart megaphone effect that I have here. And uh, <laughs> so we, we just wanted to have you on and chat about your amazing history in this business. And first of all, Oh, you got you got a megaphone with you, of course, as of course you do. Is I that brought a the hook. No, it's, uh, <laughs> I brought the hookaphone today. This is listen. I've got to tell you this. this um, the megaphone here was given to me by Vince McMahon years before forty years ago, 
And uh, he brought it over from Japan. And he said, this is going to be your new gimmick. And I said, okay, whatever you want, baby. But this is my brand new Mattel action figure. It just came out two days ago. And it's got that identical megaphone in the package. So I just wanted to get that plug in. Oh, absolutely. The new Mattel Jimmy Hart uh, for the collectors. Yeah. They're going to run out there and need that one right now. Um, Jimmy, so so let's let's start there. There's so many different places to go. I don't want to go completely chronological because your career is so long. I don't want to get lost and miss stuff. Let's start right there. You said Vince gave you the megaphone. How long had you been in New York with Vince when he had the idea for the megaphone? I was there about a couple of months because I was lucky. You know, this is the 40th year anniversary of Hulkamania, right? Well, it's also the 40th year of the mouth of the South Jimmy Hart because I was on WrestleMania 1. I managed right. Greg, the Hammer, Greg, Greg the Hammer Valentine. Came back and changed jackets and managed King Kong Bundy. So, uh, but I was there about two months, and then uh, Vince brought the megaphone over from Japan, and he goes, "Jimmy, this is going to be your new gimmick." And I said, "Okay, whatever you want, boss." And he goes, "Why did he? Why did he have that idea though? Where, where did he see it? Like, what happened?" I, I think there might have been a manager or somebody over in Japan that was using one, and him and George Scott came back from a tour of Japan. And one day, me and Honky Tonk, man, we were sitting on at Poughkeepsie, New York. We were sitting on some boxes getting ready to go to the ring, right? And Vince came up and goes, Jimmy, here's your new gimmick. Honky goes, oh, that's great. And I went, no, it's beautiful. And he goes, I said, hey, Vince, can I paint it, do anything I want with it? He goes, you can do anything you want with it. Make it look colorful. And I went, okay, baby. <laughs> so the phone call initially to come to New York, do you remember right. getting it? Was it a call from Vince himself? Who reached out to you initially to say in this takeover that WWE was doing, that Vince Jr. was doing, we want Jimmy Hart to be a part of what we're doing here in New York? Howard Finkel was watching some videotapes of all of our Memphis stuff. So he made the phone call to Hillbilly Jim, who in our territory then was Harley Davidson. So Hillbilly called me and he goes, Jimmy, you haven't returned your phone call to New York. They've been trying to call you every week. And I, I thought it was Austin Idol or a handsome Jimmy Valiant or somebody want me to give them a ride uh, to the TV station from the airport when they came to Memphis, right? So I never called the number back. So finally, he told me to call uh, the number. So I did, but it was Howard Finkel. And Howard goes, I showed Vince McMahon your tapes. He loves it. He wants to know, would you like to uh, participate in a show we've got called WrestleMania and come to New York and be a manager? And I went, feet, don't fail me now, Vince. Uh, and all of a sudden, about 30 minutes later, Vince called. And then Vince talked to me, and I was on the plane the next day heading for New York, baby. Were you, did you feel done with Memphis at the time? Did you feel that you'd run your course with all the great things you'd done with Jerry Lawler and, and company in, in Memphis? No, but you know what? I was really scared to make the jump, but I knew nothing lasts forever. You know, I don't care what you're in. Nothing lasts forever. So I knew maybe it was time for me to make a move while we were still doing good business down there. And uh, I like I was, I was so grateful that Jerry Lauder and Jerry Jarrett used me in Memphis. But I was so grateful that I got the, the phone call uh, to go to New York with Vince. And of course, you know, Huck was up there and Huck and I've been friends. Well, right now, this makes the 43rd year we've been friends. We've been friends for 43 years. But he but he had come through there years before that, and I had a chance to manage him against the King, Jerry Lawler. So with Hulk being up there, King Kong Bundy being up there, who I managed in Memphis also, uh, I just thought, I've got to make the move. How was the conversation? Was the conversation that you had there with Lawler or Jerry Jarrett? 
Neither one. What happened, I was running the TV show because they were out of town, thank goodness. Lawler had been in Japan. Jerry Lawler, I mean, Jerry Jarrett was on a hunting trip. So they uh, gave me the tapes and said, you've got to run TV Saturday. And wouldn't you know it, there was a blizzard snowstorm happening, but we had a good crowd. So I went to Lance Russell and I said, Lance, I, got, I wanted to figure a good way to get out of it uh, with these guys. So when I did it, I went to him and said, look, whatever I do, you suspend me, Lance, because Lance was in charge that day, okay? He was like the commissioner. So he said, okay, whatever you do, I'll suspend you. What are you doing? And I said, you'll know later on. So we had a match against uh, – I was managing the Dirty White Boys against uh, somebody. I don't know who. So it was a, a big f- 50-pound bag of flour on top of a big pole, and whoever lost the match, it got dumped on, right? So I, I showed Lance how it worked, and I dumped the uh, powder, the, the flour, on uh, on Lance – during a live TV. So Lance goes, you're suspended. So I jumped underneath the ring, hooked myself under it. And for the whole hour and a half show, I wouldn't come out from underneath the ring. They had the, the security trying to get me out while the show was going on. And so when I came in the back, Lance goes, that was great TV. And I said, Lance, I'm really leaving. He goes, what? And so when Lauder came back from uh, Japan, I told him, he called Jerry Jared and he goes, I'm going to sue you and Vince McMahon. And I, I got, I played Jimmy Hart. Then I said, I'm going to sue y'all for impersonating a wrestling company. I said, uh, <laughs> and so, but it all worked out later on. Lawler finally came to New York and Jerry Jarrett and I, we became friends again. So it all worked out. So the fact that you knew Hogan and Bundy, uh, et cetera, that made it a little bit less scary. Cause it must've been a little scary for you. I mean, a, a Southern guy, had this incredible run becoming such a guy, but this is a regional time for, for pro wrestling must've been some nerves about coming up to, to new, the big city. Well, I was scared to death at first because what happened, the lady that does the travel, when Vince asked me to come up there, uh, he put me on with travel and they said, Mr. Hart, what, uh, what airline would you like to fly on? Who do you have a frequent flyer with? Well, down in Memphis, we were driving everywhere. So I didn't have a frequent <laughs> flyer number. So she kept wanting and I kept trying to dodge it. And I went, well, whatever you put me on, well, just tell me what you want. No, ma'am, you choose. I'm happy to be up there. No, Mr. Hart, you tell me. And I went, uh, well, what are, uh, how about Delta? She goes, what's your number? So I said, can I put it in at the airport? She said, yeah, you can. And so that's how I kind of kayfabed it and got by with doing it. But uh, it was just a thrill for me. And of course, being on the first WrestleMania 40 years ago, it's just, like I said, and to still be doing this, sometimes I look in the mirror and I pinch myself and to go, did I really get paid for doing this with the biggest company in the world? Yeah. yeah and for, and for, and for so, so long, uh, when, and, and you've did, and, and, and you're such a, important integral part of those early years as managers really were. And of course you and Bobby, the brain probably being the most important of those managers. And, and, and by the way, you know, slick and Mr. Fuji and, and Elizabeth, many others deserve their flowers as well. But when you first get there, do you, did they tell you right away who you would be working with? How did sort of your stable come together? How, did, did you know right away? Did it just evolve over time? Take us through that part of it. Okay, well, first of all, they uh, Howard Finkel said, look, you're going to manage Greg the Hammer Valentine. And I saw Greg in magazines and stuff, but, but you know, down here, we didn't pick up the New York TV, of course, in Memphis. And so uh, I was thrilled to manage Greg. So when I first get Greg, Greg goes, oh, my God, I thought they said uh, Gary Hart was going to manage me. And I went, no, it's me. So so because how on the way down there, Howard goes, do you have heat with Greg? And I said, no, I've never met him before. But now I know I knew the reason why after I met him, because I guess Greg and, and uh, Gary Hart. Gary Hart had heat. <laughs> right. With, with, with him. He thought it was me coming in. I went, oh, my God. And so I had him. And then I had King Kong Bundy, who I had in Memphis. And it just went on and on. Then I had Neidhart, who I managed in Memphis. And then later on, we brought Bret Hart in and he joined us. 
And then, of course, I had the honky tonk man, which fit in good with me because I managed him in Memphis, too. And um, then I had the Iron Sheik in Memphis. I didn't manage him up there or Rick Rude, who I managed down in Memphis also. But uh, it just turned out to be so great for me. Everybody they gave me, it was like a dream come true because we fit in so good with everybody. And, of course, later on, then I had Cherry and Dory Funk. I had... uh, we had uh, the Rougeau brothers, Jacques and Raymond. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, and then, you know, of course, Dino Bravo, Adrian Adonis, Earthquake and Typhoon. The list just went on and on. Nasty Boys. So I was just blessed. Yeah, y- y- you had an unbelievable uh, group of talent around you. And you, y- you did one thing that I don't think people realize you were among or maybe the first to do. And that is really stay by ringside during matches. So was it really customary at that point? Managers would often come down, take the jackets from the superstars, and then walk to the back? Well, what happened? They kind of really got mad at me. I remember one day we had a meeting, Mr. Fuji and Lou Albano and uh, Fred Blassie said, Jimmy, what are you doing? And I went, what do you mean? He goes, look, all we do is we get paid for going in the ring, patting our guys on the back, and then leaving. And then we catch the the first uh, car we can to get out of the building and stuff, you know? And I said, I know, but I came from Memphis, and I want to do whatever they want me to do. And George Scott and Vince asked me, did I mind going to the ring? I said, no, I'd love to go. And I wanted to be involved with it. And uh, I think my guys liked it too. I always featured my guys more than me because I knew I was going to get the attention by being at ringside with them. But they were the stars and I was kind of the hood on them on the Cadillac. You know what I mean? And so I enjoyed doing it. But after a while, all of a sudden, they made them start going to the ring. Fuji had to go to the ring. Lou Albano had to go to the ring. And Bobby was always going to the ring, you know. Was, was Bobby, but when you got there... You- was Bobby wasn't there managing yet, correct? Was he? Yeah, Bobby was already there. And um, and so uh, I, I was just thrilled to be with Bobby Heenan because I always lo- saw a lot of stuff that Bobby did, you know, and I always loved Bobby. And Bobby was always so funny and witty. And we'd fly back to Tampa together on the flights together. So we really became good friends. I'd go over to his house. He'd come to mind some when we had our off days. But, but that's why I really love the guy so much. Like Paul Heyman now is a genius. I love Paul for what he did with ECW and what he's doing now is great, you know. And I just uh, – like I said, I've been so blessed. Uh, Jimmy Cornette started in Memphis with me. I gave him his first knee guards and shin, shin guards, you know, because it's going to be so rough around ring. But uh, but he's been so talented. But uh, like I said, I've just been blessed to be with the biggest company in the world for all these years. Was Bobby was Bobby as witty and, and, and funny and smart in real life as he came across on television? 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day. I mean, he really was. And like I said, I was so grateful that we were, have been friends for all those years. And his passing was such devastating to me when it happened. I, I just couldn't believe it. Had you stayed in, I know it was communication was tough for him physically. Had you stayed in touch with him over the years? Oh, absolutely. Because uh, matter of fact, I've got one of his, he, he gave me one of his black jackets that he wore to the ring and I gave him one of my jackets too. And wow. I've got it in my storage somewhere, but, <sighs> but he would, he would come down, you know, Hogan had a beach shop. I mean, a beach bar over on, um, over in Tampa and Bobby would come over there off and on and, and do autographs for us and everything. So we, we were still all friends. Uh, in a lot of ways, I, I Bobby Heenan was someone I, I really admired and, and was one of the people I sort of wanted to emulate and being a part of the wrestling business in some way. Uh, I always sort of felt like in a lot of ways, Bobby Heenan was Hulk's ultimate nemesis. You know, when you think, when you think <laughs> yes. about the WWE years for Hogan, the, he's the most consistent nemesis Hogan had, right? Absolutely. Because after all, Andre, the giant, that's who Bobby managed. And that was what everything was kind of built around, you know? And so 
I was happy to pick up the scraps going out three or four times a night with everybody I had, but Bobby had the main event, but that was okay with me. Well, you had, you had some fabulous moments. I mean, one of the moments that's really etched in my, my childhood memories is you, you referenced it earlier. You were with Adrian Adonis and that hair match at WrestleMania three was so epic. And you were such a, a part of that getting thrown around. You took a bunch of bumps that night. Um, first of all, what was Adrian Adonis like and how much heat did he have? It felt like in that era, Adonis, whose character was, you know, a bit ahead of the times, uh, for where we were back then, I have to imagine things were pretty intense managing Adrian Adonis in the mid eighties. Well, Adrian was great. He was so funny. And for, for his size, he was very agile. But I remember when we did Tuesday Night Titans, which was kind of like a talk show uh, for the wrestling business. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when Vince, uh, we did the show, and he goes, Adrian, got a new gimmick for you, you and Jimmy. He said, we're going to put together a show called The Flower Shop, which they gave me the money, and I went out and bought all the flowers for The Flower Shop when we first put it together. But you literally put bought the flowers yeah. for The Flower Shop? Oh, yeah. It wasn't like it was. Look, everybody was on board back then. I mean, we all jumped in and did everything. You know, uh, it's not like it is now, you know, like the guys now. I mean, what a dream come true. You go and be part of WWE now. I mean, you've got catering 24 hours a day. You've got doctors with you. You've got you've got everything you need back then. You know, we weren't on any guarantee back then. And so we had to eat our lunch and dinner and supper before we got to the building back then, you know, because our money was made on what you were able to draw. Uh, in the house shows. And so that's why we worked so hard. It wasn't like a guarantee. Not that the guys don't work hard now. They do, and they're phenomenal. But uh, it was just a lot different back then. And so um, we did everything. We bought the makeup we used. We bought that for Adrian when I put his little makeup on his face, you know, when he did the uh, the, the flower shop gimmick and everything. And uh, who'd, you just, make, who'd you make the most money with on the house shows? Like who? Oh. When what, what was the one that you saw? Oh, this is going to be a good night or a good or a good uh, tour. Who was that? Hook. Hulk Hogan, hands down, because I'll tell you why. We'd get a, a, a stack of tickets for like a two-week or three-week period, right? Along with that, you'd get a booking sheet uh, for about three weeks. On the booking sheets, all the boys, we would look at who, who was in the top shows that was the main event, that the shows that we're in. And everybody, every time everybody was on a Hulk Hogan show, we knew there was going to be sellouts every town, and we were going to make more money. So we were so thrilled to have Hulk. We loved him anyhow, but we were so happy to have be on a Hulk show, but, but I did great with honky tonk man. Uh, of course, uh, the heart foundation, tremendous, but everybody, I mean, the payoffs were really good back then. I don't care who you were. Uh, Vince and the crew really took care of all of us. He really did. What was Brett like when he first got to WWE? I mean, and did you have any idea that this kid from Calgary could one day be one of the greats to ever do it? I'd never really heard of him before. Nightheart told me about him when I, when he was going to come, and he goes, Jimmy, we're going to put us with uh, uh, my uh, si- my uh, wife's brother uh, is going to come in and be with us, Bret Hart. I went, oh, great. He's got the same name as us, Nightheart, Jimmy Hart, Bret Hart. But they were going to make Bret a cowboy. He was going to ride a horse into the ring with a cowboy hat. Bret didn't like it, so they were trying to find out something for him to do. So they said, look, Bret goes, why don't you put me with Jimmy Hart and Nightheart? You know, he said, okay, great. So when he came in, he was a little shy at first, but he overcame that within the first six months. But it just worked out so beautiful. It was Jimmy Hart, Bret Hart, Neidhart, the Hart Foundation. So it just worked out great for us. But, you know, Anvil was kind of the enforcer, but Bret was kind of the guy that was very 
tech, uh, you know, had all the techniques in wrestling and everything. So it worked great. But I knew they were going to switch him babyface after about a year because the girls loved him, you know, and and the guys loved Brett too. It's hard to get a babyface out there that the um, the girls like and the guys aren't intimidated by him either. You know, it, it's funny. It's it's sort of how I feel about Cody these days. Well, you know, about Cody too, but also Roman Reigns. When I go out and do the autographs for WWE and everything, I say, hey, what show do you watch? Oh, we watch Raw, we watch SmackDown, we watch NXT. Who's your favorite? Roman Reigns, Roman Reigns. And I'm like, I'm going, but he's a heel, but Roman Reigns. But you can tell why. He's a winner. He's cousin to the rock, right? Yep. Been in a couple of movies. Handsome, been in a couple of movies. Tremendous in the ring. Can talk. And so everybody likes a winner. And so... Uh, I could see why a lot of kids like him, but uh, but Cody's great. I love Cody. You know, I loved his father. You know, I was so thrilled when I got to do music for Dusty because when Vince came to me and go, Jimmy, I want you to do a song for the American Dream. I went, okay, I love it, baby. And so I was just thrilled to be doing that. So, so you you wrote Common Man? Oh yeah, we wrote Common Man. A quick story. I went to Dusty to do it, and I said, Dusty, Vince wants me to do a song for you. He goes, I know he does because I asked him, could you do it? Because he knew I did was with the Gentries and wrote some stuff, you know, eat your heart out, Rick Springfield, Biggie, eat your heart out, Rick Springfield, right? And so uh, I did the song for him and I said, but Dusty, what do you want? And he goes, I want a cowbell in us. So cowbell, I wrote it down. He goes, give me some chick singers. I said, all right, girl singers. I wrote it down. He goes, I'd like some horns in it. I wrote it down. And I said, Dusty, why don't you just write it yourself? He goes, oh, pretty funny. So I had the cowbell started off. I had the girls singing, you know, he's American dream. So we had the three girls doing that. We had the horns going. So I played it for him. I held my breath, crossed my fingers. He goes, I love it. I love it. I love it. So they went with it. So I was thrilled to, to, to do something for the American dream. So since you brought up Dusty and, and writing that song, some people listening will know some will be surprised at how many themes you wrote slash produced. How many, give us the list of Jimmy Hart produced and written themes. Okay, I'm going to try to remember me and my, you know, I've had two different partners that always helped me with it too. Jim McGuire, who unfortunately passed away a few months ago. And, and of course, Howard Helm. But uh, what I did, um, we wrote uh, Sexy Boy by Shawn Michaels. And if you look on, a lot of people say if Jimmy Hart's lips are moving, he's lying. But if you look on Spotify, <laughs> up to date, it's had 10 million 200,000 hits on Spotify for Sexy Boy by Shawn Michaels. Sherry did it first, and then when she took a, a vacation from us, then uh, Vince wanted me to put uh, Shawn's voice on, which we did. He did a great job. The Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, all a Honky Tonk Man song. The Honky Tonk Man song, a hunk, a hunk, a honky love, and honky dog, maybe. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, uh, the Rougeau Brothers, the Nasty Boys, the Road Warriors. What a rush. Uh, we had... Uh, of course, the Heart Foundation, which I mentioned that too. Uh, we had the one for. Uh, uh, it's just been so many. I can't remember all of them right now. You kind of caught me off guard, but uh, so so wait, you wrote the 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 original riff of the of that of the Heart Foundation, the the Bret Hart. And we have a version with words on it, but we never use that. We just use the instrumental. Do you and, remember uh, the words by any chance? Uh, I think there there was trouble in the streets. They're talking everywhere. Uh, Something's going, I don't know what it is, because we're on the road to destruction. And that's how we had it. But we always just, but Vince wanted to use the instrumental because he felt like if we use the words to it, it might turn them babyface, which it did eventually anyhow. So you, you uh, couldn't stop it anyway. Did Now, did you didn't work in conjunction with Jim Johnson. You guys were, were you guys just there at the same time doing different work? 
Well, I worked with Bruce Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard was my go-to man. Jimmy did his own stuff. We okay. were separate because Jimmy's stuff was great, but it was different than what we were doing. I felt like before there was a Weird Al Yankovic, there was a Jimmy Hart because uh, we, you know, Eat Your Heart Out, Rick Springfield, uh, all the, the the songs that we did. You know, the Rougeau Brothers. We don't like heavy metal. We don't like rock and roll. All we like to listen to is Barry Manilow. And when I did it for Jock, Jock goes, "Who's Barry Manilow?" And I went, "Oh my god!" <laughs> but uh, but. Uh, but we just tried to write stuff that was funny, that fit the, the heels, you know. And uh, and Vince went with it, and Bruce Pritchard was my go-to guy when we did it. He okayed everything I did. How did you end up in the Gentries, and, and how old were you when, when the Gentries came together as a band? Well, what happened? We were in high school, and um, we put a group together uh, to get out of the last period, really. So uh, we did this so we could go to study hall and we could work on our music and stuff like that. It was kind of different back then in the, in school. And all of a sudden there was a show came through town called tell max, Ted max original amateur hour, which was like American idol now. And so we, uh, we entered that and we got to win a, a contest in the fair. And all of a sudden they sent us down to the Jackie Gleason theater, got, got to meet Jackie Gleason back then when it was in wow. Miami beach. They put us on a train and took us down there. Uh, we had to catch the train in Jackson, Tennessee. So we went down there. So live TV now, nationwide, all of a sudden, we do our song, we win. Three months later, they called us, hey, y'all are the winner, come back again. We go back again. We win the second time. Well, the third time before they called us and told us we won, a guy named George Klein, who was Elvis Presley's best friend in high school and was the best man at his wedding and everything, he had a show called Talent Party while we were in Memphis which was kind of like a poor man's American bandstand locally. So we went on that show, performed a song on that. And all of a sudden it was easy to get records played then. So all of a sudden we had the number one song in Memphis, Tennessee. So MGM came in a major company and they said, look, this record might have sold 5,000 copies here because they're from Memphis, but let's put it out in Nashville. People don't know them. And we'll put it out up in, uh, I think Atlanta, Georgia. All of a sudden, it came number one on the radio stations there. So we signed a major deal, which got us disqualified from doing the Ted Max original amateur hour, even though they still made us go um, to do uh, to Radio City Music Hall and still perform, even though we we're going to get beat. What a work that was, right? Hey, wow. you're really going to lose, but we want you to go prepare because the ratings were good for us back then. But we were kind of like the Memphis version of the Beatles. You know, we had the little long hair and everything else and the, the matching jackets and uh it just turned out great. You know, I've never really had a plan for anything I wanted to do in my life. I wanted to be a Greyhound bus driver when I was growing up. Can you believe that? Oh my God. It's not too late for you, Jimmy. I probably, I'll probably end up doing that before it's over. But, uh, <laughs> but all of a sudden I never had a plan for anything. We did the music, had a million seller record toured with Dick Clark, the beach Boys, Sonny and Cher. And once again, a lot of people say if my lips are moving, I'm lying, but I do have posters in my storage to prove that there we are with the beach boys and Sonny and Cher and Chuck Berry. And, uh, even we did a thing with the monkeys, a show with the monkeys and who at the time, Jimi Hendrix was playing with them, believe it or not. And so, uh, so that turned out great. And then I never had a plan to get in professional wrestling, which I loved when we did our tours with Dick Clark, whatever city we were in, if we were in Atlanta, I'd watch Dusty Rhodes. If we were in Carolinas, I'd watch TV and I'd see Ric Flair, who I love. Uh, if we were up in Texas, it was the Von Erics, you know? So it was just such a thrill for me. And then for me to have a chance to to uh, go to school with Jerry Lawler and for him to come me one call me one day and go, will you help me do a wrestling album? And we became friends and the rest was history. So Lawler, Lawler was already a big deal. Was he already the king of Memphis yeah. when he called you? Big star, big star in Memphis, major hey. star. 
And he just says, hey, Jimmy, I want to I want to do a music thing. Can you help with that part? There was no plan initially for you to become the mouth of the South or anything like that. No, no, absolutely not. So he called me and goes, Jimmy, Jerry Lauder. And I went, oh, my God, Jerry Lauder's on the phone. And uh, but he was a fan of our music back uh, when, when he was in school. He was doing like helping a DJ out. And he told me back then. Uh, that he always loved keep on dancing. He played like he was in the gentries, you know, and I played like I was in the wrestling business. So how do you figure that out? But uh, well, and we Jerry went, was what? Jerry was like, what, six years younger than you? Something like that? Five, six years younger than you? Yes, I think so. Five or six. Absolutely. So, uh, and we've been on tour with Dick Clark for so many years, but like everything, if you don't have a hit record or a hit album, then you're going to wind up eventually playing bars and clubs and stuff. So back at that time, we kind of settled in at the Ramadi Inn. You know, the more you drink, the better we sound. Hey, happy birthday to you, ma'am. Come on, you know. And so we were doing that. So Jerry would come out and sing with us a, a few times. And and so we went in. We helped him cut the album. And um, the album did, did real well. And he goes, look, while well, you're not on some of the days when you're not working, how about doing promotion for us? Hey, man, listen, I started helping pull the ring. Uh, I helped um, uh, going and selling merchandise. I did all that stuff, ring announcing, refereeing, everything for Jerry. And then finally, uh, I did the song on Handsome Jimmy Valiant called Son of a Gypsy. And I had the video on it. And so they got, they used the video. And to make a long story short, they loved the video so much, Jerry Jarrett came to me along with uh, Jerry and said, look, we want to make him your manager, right? I said, okay, great. So my first gig, they said, look, take this chain. Monday night at the Coliseum, he's going to be fighting Billy Superstar Dundee Lawler was. I want you to throw the chain. Well, they didn't tell me to lob the chain up there where everybody could see it. I threw it like a baseball. But lucky me, Lawler was on top of him getting ready to knock him out. The chain went flying by him. It shows on the tape him missing it, but it hit the middle rope and wrapped around it. And all he had to do was reach back, grab the chain, bam, knock Dundee out, one, two, three. Next week, I'm on TV, right? I'm on TV. Dundee goes, Jimmy Hart, Jerry Lauder, I challenged Jimmy Hart in the ring against this guy, Pat Hutchinson here. Pat, how long you been wrestling? Three years. How many matches you won? None. But I still think he can beat Jimmy Hart. So Lauder dressed me up like a clown. I wear his robe to the ring, which is about three feet too long. I wear his Tarzan top, which is about three sizes too big. Every time I took a step, I have to pull the top back up, right? Uh, I wore a pair of his boots, which I wear eight and a half. He wore 10. And I looked like Flipper going to the ring. Flop, 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 pulling the robe back. Starts and stop falling down. But after the match was over, and I never had training for it because I always loved watching the matches. And I knew enough to get bound. Jerry Jarrett didn't make it that night. He saw the tape and he said, Lawler, Jimmy Hart looks like he's been the one wrestling three years. So it all just fell right into place, you know. Did you know when you first showed up, Lawler said, let's do stuff. Were you fully in on the business and, and smartened up to it? I knew a little bit about it because uh, before that, six months before that, uh, Lawler was going to play like he, if he was going to go on vaca uh, a tour with the Gentries. So I had my whole band on stage with him. And while we were singing, keep on dancing, handsome Jimmy Valiant came out with a guitar and busted him over the head with it. And so Lauder goes, well, I can't go on tour now. I've got to, to for the people, the people want me to, to, to fight him. So that's what they did. So, uh, so I was a little smart to it then. My band wasn't. I mean, they just <laughs> kept playing. Lauder was knocked out in the thing and they kept playing. And I'm going, oh my God, you know? So uh, sometimes I think it's good to smarten people up. And so sometimes it's probably not. But uh, do, do you I, remember, so Jimmy, uh, do you remember the period? Because you were so there in the throes of, it really, like when you go back and obviously we're going to get to Andy Kaufman, but like 
when you go back and watch the footage of how riled up people were at that time, and the business now is maybe hotter than it's ever been, but it's different. People are much more smartened up to it and in on what the whole thing is. Do you remember a feeling in the crowd changing at all where it went from they don't know what's going on and they're really hot versus we love this, we just enjoy the show? Do you remember that change at all? Well, it never took place in our Memphis days because there was no social media back then. I mean, the only thing we knew what was happening in another territory was by a newspaper uh, or a clipping or something, if it slicked through, or uh, if we picked up a TBS, you know, Turner down there, or I think the Von Erich's TV was kind of bicycled in a little bit where you could see some of the talent going to the same places. But no, down there, man, the people, buddy, every Monday night, they believe, listen, when we did an interview you knew if you made it with a wrestling company tonight, because if your crowds were down and you weren't making any money, you know, you weren't going to be in that territory very long. So whatever we went on TV and said and did, we stayed at different hotels, never rode in cars together. I mean, never ate at the same restaurants together. I mean, it was completely kayfabe back then. And the people really believe. And uh, but I saw it starting to change a little bit. And it, when I first went to New York, it, it was like that, too. You know, but as we got hotter in New York, when MTV came in. More news people, more newspapers and news people were in the shows we were going to because all of a sudden everybody was like a rock star. We were part of MTV with Cindy Lauper and that that movement and the and the Madison Square Garden. Everywhere was selling out back then. Right. And it, it started changing a little bit after that because there were more questions asked about the product, you know. And then the John Stossel thing happened. And I guess <laughs> they realized back then, well, maybe it is pretty real, you know. But uh, and, and after a while, after social media took off and everything else, then it came a little bit more exposed back then to where it is now. I always felt bad. I, I, recently, I should say, I felt bad for David Schultz uh, to some degree. I, I, tell me tell me what you remember about that time. Outside looking in, I guess I look at it as in some way he was trying to protect the business and it was sort of like, this is what I've been taught to do. And now all of a sudden you, you take this hard stance to protect the business and ended up essentially ruining his career and we ended up, the business ended up getting exposed as time went on anyway. How did you observe the Stossel-David Schultz situation? Well, it was crazy. It was bizarre because we were in Madison Square Garden that night. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, they said, look, uh, everybody stay out of the hallway. I think Mr. Fuji was the only one that went out there. <laughs> but uh, uh, there were a few people standing around. But we kind of heard the reaction after it all took place. And they go, you know what happened? What? Man, Dave, uh, Stossel got the, you know what, slapped out of him. Oh my God, really? And then all of a sudden it was on news everywhere. Bam, boom, 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 boom. But you know what? In a way, it was kind of a good thing too, because what happened, the more he tried to expose it, the more people defended it. And the more TV we got on everything we did. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, I guess Eric Bischoff has a book out or had a book out called Controversial Creates Cash. So I guess he was right. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED highlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, 
It's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I was at the Hall of Fame last year and I was really touched uh, by the Andy Kaufman induction um, because it seemed to me that based on what I know from reading, you know, Bob Zamuda's book and, and seeing Man on the Moon and everything you hear is that of all the accolades Andy Kaufman has received in his life, that Hall of Fame nod really would have meant a lot to him. Um, it just seems like he really adored the business so much. What do you remember about meeting Andy Kaufman, because I have to imagine, based on the kind of character he played and the kind of character Jimmy Hart was, he had to be a, a huge fan of your work. Uh, Andy was so real. I mean, so real. Uh, the reason I inducted him in the Hall of Fame is because, you know, Jerry's a little under the weather right now. You know, he had a stroke. He's trying to do better. So we're all praying for him. Absolutely. So they they call me and, and Jerry and I were going to do it together. Then it was going to be me. Then it was back and forth. I'm going, I'm pulling my hair out going, please, somebody tell me we're one day away from it. And then we're three hours away. Okay, Jimmy, it's going to be you. <gasps> but you only have three minutes. Every time I induct somebody, I go to Bruce Pritchard or Vince or whoever's in charge, Triple H. Jimmy, we only need three minutes. Okay, baby. And I'll do it like less than three minutes because I got to get it in. And then people will go, well, why don't you say more about this and this? I can't tell them. I only had three minutes. Well, and you're Andy, one of the few people who actually sticks to it. You're, you're very, you, you actually honor the time, which is good because the one knock on the hall of fame is there are nights where it's wonderful, but it goes so long that it, people towards the end get lost. And I thought last year was actually really good because people kept it together. Remember when Hillbilly Jim did his? I inducted Hillbilly. It took me two minutes and three seconds. He took about three hours on his. The time he got through with his speech, nobody was left there for Goldberg. <laughs> there was nobody in the audience. Goldberg, hey, where'd everybody go? You know, but uh, but I learned, hey, whatever the company wants, that's what they want me to wear pink. I'll wear pink. Wear blue, I'm blue. You know, it doesn't matter. But three minutes, I did it in two minutes and 52 seconds. But, uh, but, uh, but I wanted Jerry to be there doing it. So at least I said, can Jerry at least do a film? 
that he could put me over. That's why I'm doing it. So they let him do that. I don't want people to boo me out of the building because Jerry wasn't there. But uh, Andy was awesome. When I started managing Andy, Jerry put me with him because Andy would like to do his stick outside the ring at, on Monday night. Well, the people on Monday night, they're looking at their watches going, okay, it's going to be two and a half hours because we got to go to work tomorrow. Well, Andy would get out there and go, I'm from Hollywood, you know. And so Lauder put me with him so I could kind of control him. Okay, we got to get the match started, get in the ring. But it really worked out great. But Andy and I became good friends. The only thing about him, after we'd get through on Monday night, after the show on Monday night, he wanted to go by Elvis's house. And I said, Andy, Elvis is dead. He's, he died in 77, you know. And he goes, no, he's still alive. And after the matches, now the next day, we had to drive to Louisville, right? So he wanted to go, and we sat across the street from Elvis's in car for 30 or 40 minutes and going, I know he's going to come out. I know he's going to come out. And he ain't coming out, baby. No, he might be disguised. I mean, that's what he, but he loved Elvis, you know? And so uh, Andy would stay at my house some. Uh, what was he What was he like just like in – in quiet, regular times when no one, when there's no camera there, what was he like? He was great. He, he talked, he loved Elvis. His favorite wrestler was nature boy, Buddy Rogers. He loved him, but, uh, he would just talk about the matches and what we could do. Well, what can we do with Lawler next? Cause you know, we had almost a two year program. Um, me and Andy, I managed Andy. Then I, then Andy turned on me. Andy and I fought for four or five months and then we joined then he joined Jerry Lawler, and I had a tag team up of him and Lawler against us and the Assassins. Then we came back again, and we turned on Lawler again. So we had a great run out of that. I, I didn't realize. In, no, because until I watched Tales from the Territories recently, right. the special on Andy, I did not realize it went so long. I did not Ooh. realize he was he was really in the business. This wasn't a this wasn't like a, a quick couple of. If you saw the movie, you might only think it was a few months or a few spots. He really was a part of uh, weekly television, huh? Absolutely. And a lot of fans were disappointed in the movie because there wasn't very much of wrestling in there. It was more about him being a comedian, you know. And uh, I was with WCW at the time, and I couldn't be part of that because they had called to see if I could do the managing thing, but I couldn't do it because Lawler, you know, our companies were kind of at each other's throats back then. But uh, but Andy was great. He, uh, Matter of fact, I just donated to uh, where the lost treasures, a pair of his sunglasses and a few other things that he had left at my house back then, you know, but he'd stay at my house and he was just great, but he loved this. That's all we talk about in the car. If he went on a trip with me to Lexington or wherever, all we did was talk about Elvis nature boy, buddy Rogers, which I didn't know a lot about, you know, nature boy, Ric Flair. I could tell him a lot on, but not nature boy, buddy Rogers, but, but he loved Elvis and he loved the wrestling business. And that's what he, it was 24 seven down there with us. I also didn't know until I saw that Tales from the Territory that he was sick and still with you guys. You know what? Stupid me. We were in the we had a little separate dress room together. The only time I'd get out of the dress room was when he had to meditate. He'd meditate every night before the show. And he goes, you know, I've got such a cold. Do you have a doctor here? And we thought it was like, because he thought it was cold. I said, Andy, you know what it probably is? You're out in California. What was the weather out there? He goes, oh, it was 75 today. I said, you flew in here. Look, it's 32 degrees here because it was in the wintertime. And that's what I thought. It was just him being sick from that. I didn't know. And he didn't tell me anything else that, of what it might be or nothing. But I guess they were just trying to figure out what it was. And then the next thing you know, we knew he passed away, you know. How did you guys How did you guys take that? How did King take that? That must have been a, oh. a real – he was so big for as, – as amazing as Lawler's career is, I mean, one of the most memorable things he ever did was, was his run with Andy Kaufman. 
devastated because the thing he did, the slap that he did on David Letterman's show with Andy, that's what really made the king. King was always big in our territory, you know, whether it was Kentucky, Louisville, Missouri, you know, where Indiana, wherever. But that was, the people really got to see Jerry Lawler, who a lot of people didn't know back then, you know. And that was kind of the shot heard around the world and uh, or the slap heard around the world. And um, it, he was devastated over it. I remember he called me and go, Jimmy, Andy's sick. And I went, oh, what's we got a cold? He goes, no, it might be worse than that. You think it might be cancer or a brain tumor or whatever. We didn't know. And um, it was just, uh, it was, he was devastated. As we all are, every time, listen, I'm so devastated sometimes. Look at the people I've been with that have passed away. I had uh, Plowboy Frazier in Memphis, who was Uncle Elmer up in New York. I managed Rick Rude in Memphis, who's gone. I managed the Iron Sheik in Memphis, who is gone. Uh, just so many, Eddie Gilbert in Memphis, who passed, who's gone. And uh, just so many of the guys that, that I've been with that aren't with us anymore. We did the Legends House together, which was such a thrill for me. Piper's gone from that. Uh, you had me and gone from that. Yeah. Howard's gone. Pat Patterson's gone. Every day, Pat would get up and go, and now the time has come for me to face the final curtain. And that hits home because he played the piano on it. And so every time I hear that song, I think of Pat Patterson, you know? And it's just, uh, and the list goes on and on. How was how was Legends House? I saw you guys briefly. You actually came to my radio station for promo of that. It was such a it was such a treat getting to see all of you guys together. But now with all those guys we've lost, you must treasure that time even more. Oh, it was so important. And, and it means more now than what it did then. But, you know, you forget we were in the house for almost two months. We had to cook our own food. The only time they took us out if we had some kind of competition going on. No phones, no cell phones, no laptop computers, uh, no newspapers, no TV. This was strictly about us. And... It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a, a work on it. Vince didn't want us to talk with each other about angles or anything. What you saw was what you got, you know, and that's what made it so special. When Vince called me about being part of it, I was thrilled to be part of it. So, but uh, like I said before, I'm just, uh, I'm so happy to be part of this business after all these years, you know, and everything that, that everybody's done for me. And Triple H still carrying the football now, carrying this football on to score touchdown after touchdown after touchdown, you know. And and Mr. Khan being involved with it, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's just like him being there and and Sean. I mean, just everybody. No, we're, we're in a tremendous, NXT. we're in a tremendous place with with what Nick Khan and, and Triple H and company are doing. And, and yeah, you, as you mentioned, Sean's job he's done at NXT. It's just, it really is a, an amazing time. You seem so grateful to have to to get to participate in it. I guess to us it might sound strange because you're such a legend. Of course, you, you could part. You, you they'd want you to participate. Do you say that because You've seen so many other talented people who were not able to get to have an entire lifetime of, of participating. I have too. And I've saw people who don't appreciate it, you know, mm. until you get down and out. All of a sudden you go, oh, we're, you know, my whole thing. And I tell everybody everything always. Look, you've got to change sometimes because the old saying, if you do what you've always done, you're going to have what you've always had. You know, so I've tried to always change. I've always tried to be energetic. I love what I do. Uh, I remember the one time you probably don't remember when I got to do the show with you. And I think King was on it and Booker T, one of the mm -hmm. pre-show deals. I mm -hmm. mean, I was I was thrilled to be part of that. You know, I, I, I love everything y'all do. I'm so grateful. Look, every Monday night, Hulk and I watch Raw on Monday nights. Uh, we watch uh, uh, I watch uh, NXT on Tuesday. I saw it last night. What a great show. And I'm not just saying it to say it because that's the future. Because if you look at New York now, what we have up there now in Stanford, Seth Rollins came from NXT. 
Bianca Belair, who's phenomenal. NXT, you know, if you look at all the people from NXT that are up there, if they hadn't have been there, we wouldn't even have a territory now. I mean, not a territory, we wouldn't have a TV show. But I, SmackDown's great. I enjoy, I love Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman, so I, when I see Paul, I go, you mind me of Rush Limbaugh. He goes, why? And I said, because <laughs> Rush would go. And now I want to tell you the story. And, and Paul, he talks in syllables like that. And now I am the advocate for the, you know, our... The head of the table, you know, it's like bam, 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 bam. Do you do you love- feel do you feel that you know beyond Paul, we don't have a lot of advocates or managers, and it's a regular complaint from old school fans like myself who say, "Why aren't there more managers?" Do you think the manager is missed in the product these days? Hey, I've still got the megaphone, baby, and can still talk. But no, uh, no. But, but Paul Emery just came in up there, which is great. I managed Paul in Memphis back in the day. We had bleached his hair and everything else, but Paul was great for us. But I love Paul. Paul just started back up there. And I noticed they use the girls a lot, which is great. I noticed all the fashions up there, they have a girl with them now. I watch NXT, and they have a girl with all their guys that go out too. So um, the girls are just as great. You know, they do great. They can talk too and, and, and take bumps like the guys could. So it's just a different era right now. And so there's just, uh, you know, I'm very, I watch TV so much. On, on what we have happening because when they call me to do a, a radio show or call me to do interviews or, or promote Royal Rumble, like last year I was out with Snoop Dogg uh, doing all the promotion for the uh, WrestleMania. You know, I was in San Diego one day, the next day is uh, Sacramento and then of course LA and stuff. So, uh, but I still enjoy Whenever they call me for anything, I just got through doing a couple of weeks, a month ago, um, the um, rivalries, so I did four four things on the rivalry. So I did that. Got a new thing coming out. Uh, hope, hopefully, it comes out pretty soon. That me and Mick Foley did last year on uh, treasures. You know, remember? Yeah, you know, treasures. I remember billion. So whenever they throw anything at me, buddy, I'm I'm running and catching. I got my jackets all laid out, ready to go. Well, I, I have it, to imagine you're going to be around the Royal Rumble then this year because it, if it's in our backyard, if if they call me and call Huck, you know, me and Huck, we're kind of a package. If they call Huckster, I'll be there. If they call me, I'll be there. But with everything selling out now, and they don't need a lot of promotion on stuff right now because it's doing so well. But uh, I think the last show we did for them did a great rating, too. It was uh, Huck and myself, and it was at one of the Raw. Uh, I think Raw, it was a special on Raw that we had. And because uh, we had to fly, they put us on a private plane. We went up and picked up Sean. Sean went with us over there, too. And uh, it was just a great show, but a great rating. But I was glad to go out with Hulk on that. So anytime they call me for anything, I'm still there, baby. So don't send me no flowers because I ain't dead yet. Tell me this, uh, Jimmy. Speaking of Hulk, you guys are obviously very close. And even though we don't associate you with his time in WWE, except for being a rival back in the day, obviously you go to WCW. Uh, you guys are there together that day riding in the in the convertible. I mean, and yeah. from that point on, you guys have sort of been uh, it, it, not only friends behind the scenes, but in front of the camera, we see you guys together. What's something about Hulk Hogan? A lot of people have a lot of different things to say about Hulk. Hulk has had his own uh, troubles in his personal life, and he's gotten over, gotten through a lot of things. What are some things that people might not know about Terry Bollea, the man? Because we really just know that guy, Hulk Hogan, who we see with his 24-inch pythons. The real deal, whether you like him or what, look, the haters are always going to hate, never going to change the haters, no matter what. Some people are going to like Raw. Some people are going to like SmackDown. Oh, Seth Rollins is my favorite. No, Roman, you know, you're always going to have that, no matter what. But Hulk's the real deal. I've seen him before. We used to do the Make-A-Wishes up there, and I see him now in his beat shop. You know, uh, 
Ron Howard, who's this right-hand man who runs all of his beach shops, the one in Orlando and the one down here, of course, uh, uh, in Clearwater. Uh, Ron will call me all the time. I got coming in today. He said, uh, there's a make-a-wish coming down, kid coming down. Are there somebody from the local hospital coming down? They don't go, let's get a camera crew out here. Let's get a newspaper out here to really uh, you know, make people know what he's doing. He's very careful on that stuff. And, and he takes time with them. He'll rub their arm and go, oh man, let me get some, let me get some, some muscles from your muscles, man. This is, this is what I need. I need this energy today. And no matter, you know, Hulk's had 12 back operations, right? And no matter how he, how he's been hurt, sick, whatever, he always takes the time out. If somebody's on the street that needs something, we've been in the car. You will not believe so many times we've gone by somebody, you know, asking for money, you know, uh, homeless or whatever. And he'll go, here, but I got my billfold. He'll, you know, he'll he'll pull whatever he's got out and give it to him. I've seen him give a hundred dollars, fifty dollars, twenty five, you know, whatever you might have. But he does it contingently. And I go, huh? We better stop by the bank. If we go by many more truck stops or stops over here, you're going to be broke. And he goes, brother, they need it though. They need it, brother. But you know, he's got the um, Hogan's hangout on Monday nights. We have all of our TVs on Raw, and and we let the people do karaoke and they have fun. It does great. But that's on Monday night. And then Ron Howard runs the beach. He's got two beach shops down here. And I tell Hulk, I said, Hulk, these shops have been here for 11 years. If you went over with the people, they ain't going to be here for 11 years. Maybe they're going to be here for about 11 months and gone, you know. But uh, uh, it's just, uh, we call it the beach shop. We just changed the name to Hogan's uh, Wrestling Shop. But he's got everything in here. If you come in here, not just Hulkamania, you've got Seth Rollins, you've got Roman Reigns, you've got everything. Matter of fact, uh, my friend called me one of the one of the Samoans, uh, a, a sick kid that was a friend of of, uh, of one of the Samoans called, and uh, uh, they wanted a picture of Hulk for for the kid, right? And so the first thing we did, I called Hulk. He goes, "Get over, see Ron. Get me an autographed picture. Bring it back here, and I'll get it to him because he loves the Samoans." You know, he was Alpha Sika. He was so close with them. And have you seen the picture of him holding Roman Reigns up when he was a little oh, kid? Yeah. Isn't that great? And so. Nice. Uh, that's, yeah. that's what I love about this business. There's there's such an amazing lineage and connection that goes from from generation to generation. It's one of the things that I think is so sort of charming about professional wrestling. And, and you know what, too? And look, doing the hiatus on everybody, the WWE kept it really going uh, with, with Vince and then Shawn, Shawn Michaels. And, of course, Stephanie was there and, of course, Triple H. And they kept it during the COVID going week after week after week when everybody else was floating around and now it's stronger than ever i mean think about the lives they give for this because they love it just as much as i do i mean do you think they have time to go and take a fishing trip or a hunting trip or no it's seven days a week man and like i said i want to say hello to bruce pritchard who just had an operation too i love you bruce so oh yes yeah, i love to uh to bruce of course do you, do you think there's a chance we were talking about this on the on the podcast the other day we know we're not going to get that hulk hogan last match that i think we all you know Everyone sort of hoped you'd get one final match. I, I I know the shape he's in. That's just not possible. But just for fun's sake, if they call if they called Hulk next week and said we want you to be in the Rumble, we could we'll have you'll we'll, you'll get eliminated safely. Do you think Hulk would be physically capable of getting down to the ring and getting eliminated by someone in the Royal Rumble? Knowing Hulk Hogan, let me tell you something. For some reason. Even when we're at the beach shop here and these matches come on, the matches he used to be in, all of a sudden it's like he's Popeye the Sailor Man. You know, here comes the spinach. He hawks up and all of a sudden I think he could do whatever he wants to do. But I'm telling you what, he could still throw those punches. 
He could also use a chair if he had to. But I think <laughs> I think that uh, I think the fans wouldn't really care. They they would love to have him there, but they wouldn't care if he could throw a punch. If he couldn't just to, just to be in a building with Hulkamania and do that, they would be so thrilled for. It. But uh, I think there's a lot of great moments coming up for Hulk in the future. Have you seen all the action figures he's had out over this last six months? Oh my God. I've got one out, but everywhere I go, it's Hulk this, Hulk that, Hulk here. And so, uh, like I said, he's stronger than ever right now. He's got so many great things going on in his life. Of course, he just got got married, and he's happy as heck right now. So uh, we're just trying to to keep he's – he's a national treasure to all of us, you know. So, so can, I, can I, let me ask you a question? I, I sort of feel like in some ways it, it's kind of like art imitating life. And, and in certain ways, you're like a manager-type character for Hulk Hogan. In real life, is that is that inaccurate? Well, you know what? That's just on me because you know Huck and I talk about it every couple of days, you know, and uh, I'm always concerned about his health. But right now, he's doing phenomenal, you know, and and he works out religiously twice a day. Believe this or not, twice a day. And if you looked at him, you wouldn't think anything's wrong with him. He looks just like he used to look. You know, he's got the hair, he's got the the the, the headbands, he's got everything. And like I said before. You will not believe the people that come in day, seven days a week to these two stores to buy Hulk Hogan memorabilia. It is phenomenal out here. And he loves the talent. You know, he watches Roman Reigns. He watches self. He loves Cody. Uh, he thinks that what Triple H is doing up there now is phenomenal. You know, and like I said, whenever they call us to do something, we're always there. But you know what? I did have a good run with Hulk toward the end because the last year we were there, we did WrestleMania 9 together. I, uh, I'm probably the worst manager in the world. I managed the tag team champions, um, which was Money, Inc. I turned on them to manage Hulk and Brutus for WrestleMania 9. <laughs> so uh, I said, what am I doing? This is crazy. But uh, like I said before, he's running stronger than ever right now. And I don't care where you go. It's just when he has to do stuff now, they almost have to put him on a private plane to do it because it would take forever to go through the airports. Well, I, he's listen, so I'm, physically recognizable. You know, oh, he's one of the most. Yeah, he, he's one of the most recognizable celebrities, maybe of all time. You mentioned WrestleMania 9. That was always a weird mania to me. Uh, like going back at it, sort of like easing out of the 80s and early 90s energy of WWE into sort of the next. It's kind of that in-between period. It was outdoors at Caesars. It was the first day of Jim Ross on the job. There were so many things that sort of made WrestleMania 9 different. What did it feel like to you at WrestleMania 9 in Las Vegas? It was great, of course. All the WrestleManias I won were great, but it, you could feel like it might be a change coming. You know, there was just something that felt different about it. The fans were great. Uh, everything, you know, was just tremendous. But you could tell there was a little something happening on that. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people, I want to get this straight, too. A lot of people think that we left Vince to go to WCW. No, what happened? We were doing Thunder in Paradise up at Universal Studios. Eric Bischoff and uh, uh, Ric Flair came walking through. They talked to Hulk. The next thing you know, then we were there because we'd already gone from WWE. It wasn't like a big coup going, okay, we're going to jump over here to start this big uh, – uh, fight between the two companies, you know. But if you look so were you back, guys really, up at the, you guys were up at the same time. Your contracts. Yeah, well, I'll be. Here's what happened to me. Hulk told me he goes, "Look, Jimmy, I'd love to have you with me." He goes, um, "What did you make last year?" I said, "This is what I made." He goes, "There'll be a cashier's check in your bank account tomorrow if you decide to leave and come with me, take some time off, and if you don't like it after three months, you can keep the money." You know, that's how close we were. So I went to Vince at Madison Square Garden. This is a true story. We had a meeting in the back. 
And I said, Mr. McMahon, he goes, call me Vince, Jimmy. And I said, I know Mr. McMahon, but I can't. So we always had an argument over that. But uh, I said, look, I've got a chance to go with Hulk to do uh, uh, to do the show called Thunder in Paradise. He goes, yeah, I know Hulk's going to do that. And I just said, I, I want to take some time away from it because, look, I said, you're pushing Ultimate Warrior now. He's going to be great for you. Yeah, I didn't know if he was or not, but I said it anyhow. So uh, uh, I, said, I said, look, I don't have any of my guys that I'm managing anymore. You turned me babyface with, with Huckster. And I just said, I just feel like until something else comes along, I've been a heel here the whole time. And it's been such a great run, and I'm so grateful. But I'd like to take some time to go do a hook. And this is what he told me. He probably don't remember it, but if you could ask him, but he would. But he said, he goes, Jimmy, you've been the most loyal employee I've ever had. And he said, you've always been there. Whatever we ask to do with it, you never complain. And so I want you to do what makes you happy right here. And he said, you're right. We might need to find you somebody else to manage and switch you back to being a heel instead of a babyface because Hope was the biggest name we had. See, look, everybody's a superstar now. But back in our days, there were only a few superstars, Andre the Giant, Hulk Hogan, Rowdy Roddy Piper, uh, you know, just special ones, you know. But uh, so he said, yeah, take some time off. And he goes, you're always welcome back here. That's exactly the last thing he said to me. We hugged. I walked out. I went with Hulk the next day to Universal Studios. Hulk put a cashier's check in my bank account for the whole amount that I made the year before. And uh, we've been friends ever since. Who was the stiffest on old Jimmy Hart? Because you got you got ragdolled quite a bit, Jimmy. You got tossed around, man. What was the what was the most hurt you ever got? And, and who was the stiffest one to work with when you saw their name? You went, oof, might be a long night. Well, under Ultimate Warrior was a little tense. I know when he first came in and he'd pick us up, and when he picked me up to put me over his head for a slam or whatever, boy, he would grab you down by your groin so tight. Oh my God. I went from a base to a falsetto overnight. I was like, oh my God. And so, but 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 I don't think he meant it uh intentionally. It was just the way it was. Uh the the worst injury I had was a torn meniscus from a DJ named Man Cow out of Chicago. Uh, we did a uh, exhibition thing with him before a pay-per-view with WCW. And uh, he gave me a spear like Goldberg, but I wasn't turned straight, of course. I was turned sideways. And, buddy, when he hit me, I went, woo! But you know what? I never liked to complain over anything because the wrestlers in the ring took such a beating all the time. I didn't want to be the big wimp and go, oh, my God, my arms hurt. But I've had a broke jaw, broke hand, torn meniscus, fractured rib, you know, stuff like that. But I never, I never put it out there because – you know, like I said, the guys go through so much uh, pain every day. What, what's what's the most, uh, was there any sort of common thing that would happen pretty regularly that you always found to be painful? One bump in particular that just always kind of was a, a pain? The chairs in the back. I hated the chairs in the back. Oh my gosh, you know. And um, no matter how I took them, uh, it was still, you never know. And, you know, because I'm pretty thin anyhow. So my shoulder blades in my back would always catch either the left side or the right side of it. But uh, but the chairs in the back. So it was a little bit different, but other than that, but I didn't complain over it because you know, that's how you make, you choose what you do to make a living. Was there ever one story that you, you wanted to play out and it, you never got to have the story get told that still kind of haunts you and you go, ah, oh, I wish I'd gotten to work that angle with so-and-so any of those hang out there for you? You know, I'll be honest with you. We've been involved in so many different things. I remember one time, with the Piper thing, when we were in Legend's house, we had to make everything, uh, you know, nothing was predetermined there. And so I wish that in Legend's house, I wish we could have done a little work on the very end of it. 
when Pat Patterson on the very end was singing my way and everything else, I wish all of our guys could have had another run at that. In other words, taking a couple of months off and then uh, and had Legends House too. you know. I think mm. we still had a lot more to give, a lot more stuff to say where we could come back meeting at camp, you know, like going, hey, we're back. We're back in Legends House. But uh, but it's hard doing a Legends House because you really got to pick the four or five people that people really knew worldwide to be put together, which made a lot of sense. So it's hard doing something like that. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. Um, who was your, if you had to choose, let's leave Hogan out of this. From the from the heyday in the eighties, who was your your favorite talent to manage? Well, this is where it gets tough because this is like when somebody asks you uh, the Mount Rushmore of wrestlers, right? Well, to me, if you do a Mount Rushmore, you got to do WCW Mount Rushmore, Dusty Flair, you know the road, you know those people. Then you jump to uh, the eighties Mount Rushmore, then the nineties Mount Rushmore, because you can't just say these four people. But I always, I always had such a great time with the honky tonk man. You know, I love Wayne. Wayne's always been a little different, but he was always one of my favorites. We lived in Memphis together. Uh, when he would always, whatever we wanted to do, he, he, whether it was stupid or not, we'd go along with it. I said, look, we're going over to Graceland today. George Klein got us the keys to Graceland, baby. So we're going over to Elvis's. We'd go over there and shoot our pictures. I'd go in Sun Studio, uh, where Elvis cut, I got, you know, cause I had carte blanche down there because of my music. So we got honky was great. The being with the, of course, Bret Hart, Neidhart. Oh my God. I love them. You know, I still do. The Rougeau brothers, Chuck and Raymond. So underrated. Um, were you, were you, uh, do you remember the, the famed infamous, I should say Jacques Rougeau dynamite kid incident? Oh my God. Yes, I was there. It seemed like I'm in the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time, you know, because I don't like to be around any of that. Wait, were you there for the actual punch? Yeah, well, I was there for the punch, but I was on the other part of the building. Uh, I knew something was going on because here's what happened. Everybody was, we'd been on the road for quite a bit, you know, 25, 30 days and over and over. And the guys were very, you know, shaky a little bit, kind of like, I want to go home. I want to go home, even though they were making money. And so things were tense. Well, what happened when people were tense, people would tell jokes or play tricks on people or, or do stuff like that. And there was a lot of that going on. So that day, Vince came to me and said, Jimmy, help round everybody up because I want to have a meeting in the back with the boys. Okay. I said, okay, boss. So I was out talking to different people, getting them there. So was some of the other agents. And we were going to have a, a meeting before lunch. So I went, I found the Rougeaus, Jock and Raymond. And they were, back in the day, there was a platform that uh, Mean Gene would do his uh, commentary on. You know, we did do interviews on, right? Mm-hmm. So I saw Jock and Raymond, and they went, Jimmy, we can't tell you why, but we love you, and we'll probably be leaving after today. And I went, what? He said, yeah, we're going to turn our notice in after today, and we'll probably be gone. And he said, we love you. Thank you for everything you've done for us. And, and, and I went, oh, Jock, you don't mean it, do you? And I go, why? And he goes, we can't tell you because we don't want you to be involved. And we're afraid there might be a retaliation against you if you knew this ahead of time. And I went, okay. So I went in the back and I saw Vince and them. And I said, Vince, Rucho's were out there, but they said they would be here later. I, they didn't really say that. I just made that up because I didn't want them to get heat on the, you know. So Vince has this meeting about playing tricks on everybody and let's try to be more concerned. And we know everybody's working hard and blah, da da. So then we had the lunch break. So we went to lunch. So I'm on the other end because I, I had to do interviews right then because then we did a lot of interviews in the buildings we were in, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 interviews a day. And I had so many different people. So I was doing part of that. Then all of a sudden, 
we get ready to go to the lunchroom and we go, they come running up and go, oh my God, you won't believe what happened. You won't believe what happened. He goes, what? He said, Jacques, just bunch of dynamite wide open. He waited for him to come through the thing. And he goes, hey. And he turned around and buzzed. I went, oh no. And then about that same time, Randy Savage runs up to me and goes, let me tell you something. You won't believe what what your, what, what uh, Jacques did to Dynamite Kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I said, Randy, I really don't manage them. I'm not, it's just a work, and I'm not really their manager. <laughs> and then Lanny comes up. God bless Lanny. Lanny goes, my brother's wrong on this. They deserved it. He deserved every bit he got. Everybody knows it. And everybody will like it. They're just afraid to say it. And I went, well, look, Lanny, I'm not bobbed on anything. I mean, you got your opinion. They got their opinion. I'm fine. I just hate to see anything happen like that. Dynamite had but been it, cool to you. You didn't have a problem with dynamite never, when, when you guys always, were together. Always been good to me. I don't know if it's because of Huck or because you know I was just whatever they wanted to do. And we had a lot of programs with it. And of course, a lot. My That's affiliate- what I'm saying. You guys were up and down the road together. Oh, listen, my affiliation with Brett. Listen, when we switched the belt for him in Florida over here, out in uh, Tampa, they he wanted me to use the megaphone on him. He didn't, you know, and I was honored for that. I was scared to death going, I don't want to hurt him. Oh, my God. But we did. We, you saw him coming into the ring, and I attacked him ahead of time with a megaphone ahead of time, and that he wasn't able to get in the ring for the save and do the match. So uh, so I was honored he asked me. But, no, we always got along probably because he was, you know, part of that Brett, uh, you know, combination thing too, you know, with the dungeon and everything. So, uh, no, they were always cool to me. Both of them, Dynamite and Davey, were always good to me. And what about Matilda? Matilda, oh, let me tell you how this story happened. Everybody goes, how did you get the dog to, to grab the megaphone? I have the megaphone like here, right? So in the yeah. dressing room, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't carry the batteries in it. So I'd put the batteries in. When I did, I'd put the top on like this, right? So I'd okay. put the batteries in, but I put the top down, and the, the megaphone, the siren would go off ah, automatically. Well, all of a sudden, Matilda in the dressing room that night, she hates the siren. She started grabbing the megaphone. So I went, oh, my God. I said, look, guys, I've got an idea. I said, do y'all mind if we get in the ring? And what I'll do, I'll have the batteries in, but I'll push the button with the siren on it. Matilda will attack me. I'll take a bump. She'll grab the megaphone and start running around the ring with this guy. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I talked to Chief J. Strongbow, and Chief J. Strongbow said, that's a great idea. So we'd do it every night. We'd do it. Strongbow was the agent? Yeah, he was our agent most of the time with us, you know. And so he would do that. And but when he would do it, uh, it people loved it. People would go crazy. And uh, and of course, you know, I rolled across the floor trying to get out of the way. And Matilda would never attack me, just the megaphone. Then we'd get the megaphone back, start the match. But it, it was just something special that we didn't plan that just took place on an accident. Hell of a worker, that Matilda. Um, Woo! She, awesome. <laughs> she does. Hey, can I tell you one quick story? I'll make it two minutes. Of course, we were, please. We were in White Plains, New York. And, you know, the New York Commission up there was very strong. They could really find you. They could suspend you. They could do anything back then. I don't know if they still can now or not, but back then they could. The referee that we had there wore a toupee, real small okay. referee, but he was a licensed referee. So before the night, he comes and goes, look, whatever y'all do, do not touch my toupee. Do not touch my toupee. Okay, we're not, no problem. Well, Jim the Anvil Lightheart and Brett were always late coming to the matches. I always had two or three other matches on the card, so I was there. So when Nightheart comes in, he, uh, Chief goes, okay, from now on, y'all are going to be main event every night because y'all come late every night. And so I uh, said, okay. So Brett was getting ready real quick. Nightheart took the, the, the white tape, started taping his elbow, up, elbow pad up because it was loose. But some of the tape got turned around backwards. You know, it was sticky on one side, sticky. He kept wrapping it. So now... We're fighting the Rougeau brothers before they switched heel and, and before I turned on the hearts, right? So now we got them in the corner. You've seen the spot. You go to the corner. 
The heel's got the baby face in the corner. The referee gets in between it. No, stop, 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 right? Well, Neidhart threw his punch across when he did, across the guy's hair. When he did, his tape stuck to the toupee. When he pulled his hand back, the toupee was dangling off the Oh, my God, the Rougeos jumped out. I got underneath the ring. We were all laughing so hard. Brett was laughing. Everybody was laughing. And Neidhart's going, what, what, what? Walking around the ring with a toupee hanging on. They, that was the end of the night. We had to stop the match. We get in the back, and the referee goes, you're fine, and you're suspended. I said, why am I fine? I didn't even do anything. You're all you're all part of this. Arnold Scolan had to give the guy money, the commission, so we wouldn't be suspended. And he, d- he did that for, you know, whatever. But it was an accident. But that was one of the craziest things that ever happened to us back then. So, well, and that's one but of the, and that's that's in an era when the whole the show is all a work, but you run up against these real sports commissions. Woo! Commission, buddy, they were strong. No fighting over here. No fighting on the floor. Uh, Got to have a railing around the ring. Uh, you know, it was it was strict, brother. And boy, you, whatever they told you to do, if they wanted to stop a match, they could stop a match. Sure could. Um, Jimmy, it means a lot that you took this time and, and we got to give the fans an hour and, and of, of getting to hear you talk. I, I, you're one of the greats to do it. You're a tribute to the sport. Uh, you know, you're not a guy who does tons of, um, shoot interviews where you bury out half the people you worked with, which I appreciate. Um, get, get that, get that Mattel figure up there yeah, one more time. You saw me pull it. Listen, <laughs> Mattel, hey, because that's all part of our company, Mattel. They're kind of like the Hulk Hogan's of action figures in the Mattel company. It's great. But, uh, but Hulk's got a new one out too. And look, here's what I'm thrilled of. Look at the back of this box. Hulk Hogan. Yep. Andre the Giant. The Iron Sheet, who I love, and Jimmy Hart. I couldn't be with a better company than that. But, but, but I'm so happy. I got a new Funko Pop coming out. Anything WWE calls me on, I say, feet don't fail me now, baby. But you do such a great job, too. I love you for having me on. When when Ben Brown called me and said uh, that Pete wants you to do the his, uh, show, and I went, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. I was excited about it, man. I love the work you do, so thank you for everything. Jimmy, that means the world. I just try to uh, do my best to not disgrace the greats who came before like you. So we appreciate you being a part of this. And uh, you know what? I have a hunch that by hook or by crook, I will see you in Tampa in a couple of weeks. I hope you'll see me and Huff and you in Tampa. I don't care if I'm popping the popcorn or parking the cars, baby. I'd love to be there. So Triple H, give me a call. Love you guys. Thank you for everything. Thanks, Jimmy. And then I went to makeup and like sat in front of the mirror a little bit and got myself together. Also, ladies and gentlemen, at this time, I would like to introduce... Red Hart is the greatest professional wrestler in the history of the art form. Midge.